In honor of the holiday season, this is a great time to share some of the most popular episodes of this past year. This month, I'll be sharing episodes you loved. Today's episode was the fourth most downloaded episode in 2022. It originally aired in July. It is episode 47, in which Dr. Wade Mullen joined me to give his impressions of a previously unreleased audio of Dave Ramsey addressing the employees at Ramsey Solutions. Dr. Mullen is an impression management expert who did his PhD dissertation on impression management techniques used by Christian organizations when faced with an image-threatening event. I was not surprised to see this episode near the top of the list, and if you're in our Patreon community, don't forget to check for the bonus episode for this week. Attorney and my good friend, Melissa J. Hogan, agreed to share an update on the ongoing Ramsey Solutions lawsuits. You don't want to miss those. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Before we get started, I wanted to make a quick note to those of you who may be sensitive to mentions of abuse or assault. There will be some mention of this at about the 32 minute mark and will be wrapped up by the 37 minute mark. There will also be quite a bit of discussion about guns. Please take care when listening. Welcome to this special episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. Today's episode is a special two-part series in which I'll share some previously unreleased audio from a Ramsey Solutions staff meeting. I also get to share some insights from impression management expert, Dr. Wade Mullen, and spend time talking with former Ramsey team members about what it was like to be in the room during those meetings and what it's like to process this now on the outside. On November 6th, 2019, the Nashville scene published an article by journalist Stephen Hale titled, Deposition? Yes, Dave Ramsey pulled out a gun in a staff meeting. The article went on to explain in a 2014 piece that had been published in the Daily Beast, a former employee had alleged that Dave Ramsey had pulled a loaded pistol out of a gift bag to teach a lesson about gossip. In this November 2019 article in the Nashville scene, journalist Stephen Hale wrote, well, that crazy anecdote has now been confirmed under oath in a deposition by a longtime Ramsey employee. In that article, the Nashville scene linked to the entire transcript of a deposition from a lawsuit that the Lampo Group, the legal name of Ramsey Solutions, was involved in at the time. And in that deposition, Nashville attorney Daniel Horwitz asked longtime Ramsey employee Jack Boone Galloway Jr., has Dave Ramsey ever pulled a gun out of a bag to try to teach a lesson about gossip? The attorney representing the Lampo Group objected to the question, but told Galloway he could answer. Galloway responded with one simple word, yes. I remember seeing this article shortly after it came out, and I scrolled through social media and noticed the responses from the public. The overwhelming consensus of the tweets and Facebook comments that I saw were commenting in a way that communicated they believed Ramsey crossed a line by pulling out a loaded gun in a staff meeting. 
I'll link to some of these responses in the show notes. Shortly after the article was published, there was a staff meeting at Ramsey Solutions in which Dave Ramsey addressed the outcry. I have a copy of that audio, and the more I've thought through the contents of that meeting, the more I wanted to connect with Dr. Wade Mullen and see if he would be interested and willing to listen to it and share his thoughts. I reached out to Dr. Mullen because his expertise is in impression management. In fact, he did his dissertation on impression management Christian organizations do in the wake of an image-threatening event. Dr. Mullen agreed to this idea, and we recently sat down and recorded our conversation in which he shared his observations. Here's that conversation. I do think it is helpful to hear uh, somebody that, like yourself, spent many hours and lots of time going over like the ways, you know, places respond when they feel threatened. And I, I feel like that is likely, uh, the context of what's happening in this meeting. Yeah. And that's, and that's helpful because as I, as I read through the transcript of the meeting, it was apparent to me that this was in response to some kind of event that happened before this meeting and right. there was a need to give an account and to defend against some kind of threat. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you might have heard the episode in which we listened in on a different team meeting. If you did, you'll notice there's a similar pattern of communication going on here. Before Dave gets to the point of talking about what this is really about, he tells a story. Often it harkens back to his southern roots. I was born in Merville, Tennessee. If you're a Yankee, that's spelled Maryville. <laughs> in the hills of East Tennessee. My well, daddy moved here when I was three, and I grew up in Antioch on the other side of the tracks. How many of you were born and raised in Tennessee? Ooh, quite a few of you. Interesting. Cool. So, I'm 59 years old. When I was four, my grandmother took me fishing in a cotton boat square-ended metal boat, which means that four-year-olds dropping stuff in the boat meant there were no fish within a five-county area. And uh, it had one of those little six-four-seven-root motors on the back of it that you held with your hand, had an arm that stuck out, and you would twist it to make it go. And um, I don't remember if we caught any fish or not, but I do remember she let me drive it. And I've had a love affair with motors ever since. Anything that's got a motor in it, I love it. I just, I, I like to, I, I'm just like Ricky Bobby, I like to go fast. <laughs> and man, I'm just, uh, and I just, I've been driving things my whole life. I learned to water ski behind that boat. We had a full size boat too, uh, but I was scared of it because I was four. And so I wouldn't ski behind it, but I skied behind the John boat with one of my parents going, nee, 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 driving this little bitty kid about this tall across the lake. And so I've been doing that my whole life. That's how I grew up. I've been driving stuff on the farm when I was 12. Daddy had a construction truck that was a 1950 uh, one, uh, one ton with a little bit of a flatbed, had a little bit of a dump on it. And I was supposed, my job was to clean out the houses with a shovel. He was building houses and there's all kinds of stuff in those houses. And I got to shovel all that out onto that truck, but I didn't care about that. The only reason I shoveled out the houses was because I got to drive the truck. Uh, and they got, you know, I stacked up some uh, Coke. They used to have these things, Coca-Cola bottles. Now we uh, stand on something similar when I'm short in front of a camera. Um, but they, they, were, they were wooden boxes that Coca-Colas came in. And we stacked two of those in the seat. And I couldn't reach the clutch and the gas 
at the same time, I had to jump down off and hit it, and I couldn't see when I was changing gears. So, um, but I drove that thing up and down the construction site way too much, more than I needed to. I would just get a little bit of stuff on there so that I could drive it and go dump it out, right? I have loved driving stuff my whole life, and, and so vehicles don't scare me. I Anything that's out, I mean, I can jump behind the wheel almost anything, and in a few minutes, I'll somebody show me a couple of levers, I'll, I'll have it figured out. I, you know, four-wheelers or motorcycles or dirt bikes. I've laid dirt bikes down on me and got burns on my legs to this day that still still are ugly from when I was eight or ten years old and you go over, jump over things. And You know, we were the generation we had a bicycles and uh, learned to ride that when I was about four and I never had, never had a bike helmet until I was 40. And we would go over ramps made out of plywood and stacked loose bricks too high and of course about the third kid to go over the ramp the bricks would collapse and he would get stitches you know and so we all had stitches everybody in the neighborhood always had stitches and so um you know th this is how i grew up one of the things i find interesting about this meeting and in this previous one that we listened to is that we get several minutes into this team meeting and he's using the time of all of his employees and he still hasn't gotten to the actual point of why they are there when I was eight years old, um, that Christmas, I, uh, my, my dad, I mean, I, my grandpa always had a gun on his hip. As long as I could remember seeing him, he was, always had a gun, always carried firearms. My dad got me my first uh, firearm. It was a 22 single-shot Marlin rifle, which is just slightly above a BB gun, basically. And it, it, required, it had three safeties on it to shoot it. I mean, it was almost impossible to shoot it because you had to pull this thing out, you had to put, turn another thing off, and it was a bolt action. And uh, I still got the gun, still in my gun room. And um, he took me down on uh, down Knowlesville Road, right below where Lennox is now. Uh, there was nothing out there in those days, of course. I was eight years old, 50 years ago, okay? And Mill Creek runs under there at Bluff Road, if you don't know where that is. We got off on Bluff Road and went just 100 yards off of Knowlesville Road was all. And in those days, beer cans weren't aluminum, they were metal. And um, all, all the redneck men in my neighborhood drank past Blue Ribbon or Bush. And the tops, when you pop the top off, it came off. You may have seen that in a movie somewhere, but it was a peel-off top. Not the whole top, but the little peel thing that, that you drank out of. So those things were piled everywhere. Everybody was, litter was everywhere. Well, I, don't, I don't remember I, when we got the idea we were going to clean up things, but I'm glad we did. Because we just pulled down there, and there was a pile of beer cans right there beside the the uh, Mill Creek, and of course, we got to throw those beer cans in. I'm eight years old, sinking those beer cans as they're going down through there with that with that rifle. And um, when I was 12, I got my first shotgun. And uh, so, I'm as about as comfortable with firearms as I am driving a car. Because I always had one. And then we started fooling around with them here a few years ago, with uh, uh, doing some training with the guys here, and a bunch of folks here have been through the training with the firearms, the uh, handgun training. Because we ask you, if, by the way, if you're new and somebody didn't tell you if you're a handgun carry enthusiast or uh, you like firearms or you want to carry a firearm, please do not carry one here unless you've been through this training. Because a person with a firearm that doesn't know how to use it is more dangerous than a bad guy. Um, because you get, I get killed by some hillbilly with a crossfire can't handle his own firearm. So um, we've all been through a bunch of training. So now I've been through probably... I don't know, we've been through AR trainings with the evil black rifles that the liberals are going to end the world. And um, I've got probably 
40 or 50 of those. And, um, so, um, you know, so we've been through probably 10,000 rounds on my farm out there. Uh, I've, I've shot probably about 10,000 rounds. We've got guys on the team and gals on the team that do competition shooting. Um, some of them are world class. Their stuff is on YouTube. Uh, we've got one guy here that can pull with a competition custom designed gun. Um, you don't even know he's got it on him right now. And he can come out from under his clothing and put three rounds in mass in under two seconds. He is so fast, it is blinding. We've got several guys that can do it in under three seconds. I can, I'm about six seconds. It takes me about six seconds to get three rounds on mass from under my clothing. Uh, and, and so forth. So it's just part of our life. I mean, for me, it's like picking up my cell phone because I've, I've had a, I've had a firearm in my pocket longer than I've had a cell phone in my pocket uh, or on me in some way. So, um, well, it's a common response, you know, when somebody is giving an account for some kind of behavior or action. There's all different options available to them. You know, they can deny that that ever happened, um, which isn't happening in, in this case, or they could offer some kind of an excuse or justification. And there's all different types of excuses and justifications. And one type of justification is to appeal to cultural norms or standards. And a form of that, as I've come to understand it, is an appeal to generational norms, or here's the culture that I grew up in, or this is the generation that I was raised in, and then begin to describe that in an effort to justify current or recent action. And so that's where I would put this in the mm -hmm. taxonomy, the categories of impression management. Yeah, and it leads people who hear that to conclude, well, you know, this is just who he is. Maybe I can step back and just give some framework for sure. helping people to understand how communication can serve to shape people's impressions of what Irving Goffman in, in his book on stigma calls normals, right? Mm -hmm. So people who are considered to be in the group and how communication can be used to shape the impressions people are forming of people who aren't in that group, mm, who aren't part of the quote unquote normals. And I think that's a helpful framework for understanding what can happen in any kind of culture when you have people at the top promoting the organization and promoting themselves in a way that leads people who are listening to that to conclude, well, this, this place and these people are special, they're quote unquote, normal, they're right, they're, they're legitimate. Yes, yes. And Dave is a, a, like, his job is communicating, like he's been doing this for a long time. He's good at telling an engaging story too. And so it does really feel like we're getting the part of like, if it was a sermon, this is the, this is the illustration. This is the, the story part of the, of the sermon. Now that's not a sermon, but you know, the sort of the same sort of outline is we're hearing a story of Dave's, Dave's background with motors, things that he could drive, things that can go fast and things that he can, can shoot. Uh, we've got some uh, people going crazy out there on social media right now, completely lost their minds. The uh, Atheist uh, Association of America has combined with the Crazy Liberal Association of America and apparently are very upset with Dave Ramsey about uh, he carries a firearm at work or whatever. And yeah. And what I found is that anytime you, you come across language that 
stigmatizes others. You know, language like, well, they're a moron or language like, well, they're just crazy. They're left wing, they're atheists, they're fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. So those are stigmas that are being attached to yeah. outsiders. I have found that anytime you see that kind of language, you can trace it back to language that promotes the organization or the self. And I believe it starts there. So even at the end of this meeting, there's a prayer. And in that prayer, there's a gratitude expressed to God for anointing this place, which is very strong language. And there's a theology there that says God has anointed us, has anointed this this place. You know, you can debate theologically whether or not that's actually, whether or not God does that. I would say God doesn't anoint people like he anointed David to be the king of Israel. Yeah. Unless you think that he anoints all Christians in a sense, but I, I don't think that that's what's being communicated here. So there's this sense of, okay, we're anointed, we're special, we're quote unquote normal, using the term that Irving Goffman uses in his book on stigma. But then that sets up this dynamic in which those who aren't part of that anointing, those who aren't part of that group, those who aren't quote unquote normal can be stigmatized, can be seen as abnormal, can be seen as different. And when that happens, then it's easy for the communicator to begin to draw attention to negative attributes about the stigmatized group, Mm. begin to exaggerate those negative attributes, begin to belittle any perceived strengths. And I see that kind of is, is what's happening. So those who are bringing concerns, those who are speaking out, those who are saying this is not okay, they're different. Mm-hmm. They're crazy. They're liberal. They're fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, a lady, this crazy liberal lady that my wife knows came up to her this weekend and she said, does Dave Ramsey, does your husband really carry a firearm in staff meeting like a loaded gun? And my wife said, he's got one on him every time you see him. <laughs> of course he's got a loaded gun on him in staff meeting. He has a loaded gun on him. I mean, I'm not sure he goes to the bathroom without a loaded gun. I mean, just, you know, I mean, my wife was just like, he carries his car keys too. I think, again, it's what's going on is there's an attempt to legitimize this kind of behavior and to legitimize it by suggesting that it's normal. And it's justified because it's part of the culture he grew up in. It's been legitimized by training and the assurance of safety that if somebody is fearful of another person having a powerful weapon that can take other people's lives, well, they shouldn't be fearful. That's an irrational fear. That's not a legitimate concern. Mm. There's always this battle for legitimacy. So when people bring concerns, there's the question of, is this a legitimate concern? And if somebody who is perhaps threatened by that concern doesn't see it as legitimate, then they may engage in this communication to establish their legitimacy and then to discredit the concerns or the people bringing those concerns. At the same level of, of him talking about carrying a gun is carrying car keys. Right. And, you know, I'm suggesting that he's his, his car that he drives, a powerful, you know, fast yeah. car, is yeah. more dangerous than the gun yeah. itself. And 
So then there's also in impression management literature, this communication strategy in which people draw comparisons. These are these more indirect types of impression management in which people will begin to create these threads between themselves and other people or other events or other things that they want people to look at. And the comparison then has the effect of communicating something. So if somebody, let's say, wants to appear as important, they might draw a comparison between themselves and another important figure in society and say, well, I know so-and-so. Name dropping is a, mm-hmm. is a type of impression management that draws and establishes these connections in a way that shapes the impressions of those who are hearing about those connections. And so it becomes this very complicated uh, type of communication in the sense that people are being asked to look at and consider various connections, but it's all an attempt to send a single message that says, well, this is legitimate and this is normal Mm -hmm. and concerns that are being brought are not legitimate. I would imagine likely most of the people in this room have, have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what he's actually referred, what's actually happened outside the building. They have no idea what the conversation was. They haven't seen the article because it's, it wasn't like in a big, you know, it wasn't on the television. It wasn't on a television news. It was, you know, a local Nashville, you know, reporter, a, you know, a smaller media outlet, you know, they're just hearing this really interesting background and they're hearing like, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Lots of people carry guns, you know, we're in the South. Uh, but what they don't know is that people weren't upset about the carrying so much as that he had pulled the gun out in a staff meeting, like moving the argument. And I don't know if that is an impression management technique or not. What are your thoughts on that? It is. I mean, one of the first steps taken by somebody or an organization in an attempt to manage impressions is to define the situation. Mm. so that other people cannot define it for themselves. In so many cases that I've come across, there's this need to define the situation accurately and to, and to promote a true narrative. But what often happens is the person who perhaps is the one in the position of defending their legitimacy or they feel threatened in some way, they define the situation in a way that leaves out certain details or paints a picture that isn't entirely accurate, leads people to wonder what is the big deal. And then you have sometimes those who are aware of what the situation actually is about or what the true natures of the con- nature of the concerns is. And they then are wanting to correct that narrative and to define the situation in an accurate way, but they're not given an opportunity to or... There just isn't that isn't that platform that they have to be able to redefine the situation in a way yeah. that is accurate. Talk to me about would I as you know just somebody this is this is my employer I get my paycheck from them I'll, a lot of my good friends are sitting there by me is my first inclination going to be to not believe that what is the dynamic happening in a room like that in that sort of group. Well, I think it varies because in any kind of group, you have people who are sincerely converted Mm -hmm. to the group itself. 
to the leadership, to its values, its beliefs, and will remain converted typically to whatever narrative, whatever, whatever story is being promoted by leadership. Then you have those who aren't sincerely converted. Maybe they haven't gotten to that point yet, or they're moving away from that. They once were sincerely converted to the to the culture, but they're still compliant. They're still choosing to show up to work. They're still choosing to do the tasks that they're being assigned. They're remaining compliant, but they're not converted. Mm-hmm. Then you have those who are withdrawing in some way, uh, perhaps psychologically, they're checking out, perhaps they're looking for another job, they're about to physically withdraw. And then you have those who are actively opposing, mm-hmm. those who are seeing what's wrong, they haven't left, they're fighting for reform. Mm-hmm. So it's going to impact people in a different way, depending on where they're at. Sure. So depending on the group they're in, they're going to, that's the lens that they're going to be taking this in through. Right, right. I do think though, that for all of them, it creates this, this culture in which you have those who are being discredited and those who, as a result of that, have not yet been discredited, but they are discreditable. And so Mm -hmm. this is, again, taking some categories from Irving Goffman, and specifically from his book, Stigma. And the subtitle of that book is a great subtitle. It's Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity. Mm -hmm. That's really so often is what's happening in any kind of communication where one group is being treated as normal and another group is being stigmatized. There's an attempt to manage identities, to keep them from being spoiled or to, or to rescue a spoiled identity. When, when that happens, you have those who are being discredited. So the impression management literature might call that attempt to discredit those who are bringing concerns or aren't sincerely converted to the way th- things are being done as condemning the condemner. So that mm-hmm. would be the tactic, condemning the condemner. So you have those who are being discredited, but when that begins to happen, then those who haven't been discredited, because perhaps because they haven't said anything out loud, uh, they haven't brought a complaint, they haven't raised a, a concern to a, a colleague, they are discreditable, even though they haven't yet been discredited. So what mm-hmm. that means is that they then carry within them these concerns, but they keep those concerns close to their chest, knowing that if they were to dissent in some way, even in a respectful way, they might be discredited, just Mm -hmm. like others have been. So it creates this, what Goffman would call an anxious, unanchored interaction, where the interactions that are taking place within that social environment are anxious because people don't know at what point they're going to say something that might cause them to be discredited. So it's very nerve wracking. You're not sure where the lines are. You're not sure if you're being washed. You're not sure if a colleague is going to go and report you for some, for a bad attitude or something that you said. And then you, it's unanchored because there's no security. If you are shown to be disloyal or in some way not fully supportive, then you might be thrown out into the seat. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're not anchored. You might be cast out. You might be ostracized. So it creates this kind of environment where you have a lots of anxious, unanchored interactions. You know, because, you know, but if you're not from that kind of, if you didn't grow up in Tennessee or an area like this, 
for you, that just terrifies you, and you need to go to counseling now that I've said this. And so, um, and I understand that if you didn't grow up with it, it's a different thing than it is for those of us that it's a part of our vernacular and a part of our, it's an extension of my hand as much as, as a pencil is, or a calculator, or the ability to put that microphone on my head and start answering questions and push the button, the muscle memory up there is the same. And I think at one point he did uh, say something to the effect, you know, this is, you know, who I am. This is how I grew up. It's difficult then for people to respond to that, to criticize current action, because they may start to believe that that will come across to the other person and to others as unkind, inconsiderate, asking someone to change who they are. Mm. their identity as opposed to can you reconsider specific decisions and choices that you're making that's a that's a different ask and so if any of your uh wussified crazy liberal atheist left-wing friends are worried about you um and, and they've got you worried about you um that's what's going on um i am that guy and um i'm really not upset about it one way or the other um, I've kind of always been that guy, so it didn't like change this week. Um, so, but if that terrifies you and um, you don't want to work here or something, it's okay. I understand. We'll take your notice today. It's fine. It's okay because I'm not going to not be who I am my whole life to keep some politically correct left-wing, anti-evangelical, anti-whatever that's looking for an excuse to be pissed off at this organization or me. And they're all upset, like laws have been broken and the federal government is going to melt down and come in here and everything. There's a lot there. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. And, and you can draw a line, I think, between language and terms like wussified and crazy to self-promoting terms that give the impression that the quote-unquote normal group is not wussified, but is tough is strong. The other group is crazy, but the normal group is rational, right? Right. It's creating this dichotomy, this us versus them. And it's using language terms like moron or wussified or crazy liberal that stigmatizes others. And stigma is the word that the Greeks came up with to describe those who were physically marked. They were branded or uh, they had, you know, something cut into their skin to actually physically mark them Mm. in a way that would signal to others that they are a threat, that they should be avoided. And now we often use that word in a metaphorical sense but it still carries the same kind of meaning that those who are marked in some way, those who are labeled morons or crazy or liberal or left-wing are people who should be avoided, should not be taken seriously. I mean, when you, this is a Christian organization, when the CEO stands before you and says, these people that are pushing back are atheists, what does that do to the listener? Right. Yeah. And what, where, where does it leave the person who is a Christian, who is perhaps conservative politically, or perhaps even grew up in the same kind of culture, familiar with guns and with cars, and perhaps even somebody who collects guns and goes to the 
shooting range to shoot their guns and mm -hmm. is very similar in that way to the kind of person that Dave is describing, yet they still believe that a line was crossed. Mm -hmm. right? Where does it leave that person? Or if they bring a concern, are they going to be immediately associated with those who are crazy and wussified and atheist, right? So it's- Yeah, it's really powerful because it goes right to your, what your, your core identity, your faith, and then all these other things that people really find their identity in. All of these things are, are very, very powerful way of saying, these are the people that are in that normal group. And these are the people that aren't. At this point, Dave mentioned some pretty serious allegations that had been made about the company. Um, Dave had went on and mentioned about one lady posting on social media. And actually I saw this post, but this is how Dave represents it. One lady then posted uh, the, on, uh, on the social media, people have lost their minds. <laughs> one lady posted, yeah, I used to live in Franklin and I have a friend that the rumors were going, there were three rapes at Ramsey and they covered them up. Rapes? I'm like, what kind of unadulterated bullshit is that? That's just ridiculous. One of the hardest things for me to process in listening to this recording was hearing the team laugh after Dave mentions these very serious allegations. I think it's fascinating because there was nothing that said three in any of the social media posts that I had seen. And then he, he starts to sound very angry. I mean, that's just, I mean, we don't, I have such a low tolerance for creepers. Um, people, men misbehaving with ladies. I have such a low, I mean, my daughters work here. We're not going to have something like that going on. We might have a murder, but we're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> Obviously, you know, I don't know, you know, what exactly. Right. You can't speak happened. to what actually happened. Right. 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 But I, I do know that from the research on impression management and communication strategies and technique, that sometimes when somebody says something or makes a claim that is threatening to the identity of the organization or the identity of a person in an effort to use that tactic called condemning the condemner in an effort to show to others why this claim is not legitimate. A person might, in their attempt to debunk that claim, exaggerate it, exaggerate the apparent falsehood, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. instead of saying, well, somebody said there was a rape, it's somebody said there were three rapes, right? There's an exaggeration, whether it's intentional or not. It's sometimes that can happen when somebody is threatened and in an attempt to discredit somebody who's bringing a concern, their concerns might be exaggerated in order to show to others, well, this can't be true. This is outrageous. Yeah. This is impossible, right? What it does though, is it discredits everything that person might have brought. So what actually was brought is kind of contained in that under all that mm -hmm. exaggeration. And yeah. that kind of is thrown out along with the whole thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. It feels like the other side of the continuum of what's happening with him talking about people talking about the gun situation. He's saying something different about what they're outraged about. People are outraged about him actually pulling the gun out. He says they're outraged about him carrying a gun. In this case, he makes the, the allegation bigger than what I have seen and just discredits that in both ways. It's like two different ends of that, that spectrum. 
And, and so there's another tactic in the impression management literature that's been given a name. And the name that it's been given is negative events misrepresented, where somebody argues in a defensive way that the negative event that another person is describing is being misrepresented. So there's something that somebody else is saying about an incident that happened here, and they are misrepresenting that. The kind of the backward nature of this is that the person who's claiming that events are being misrepresented might actually be the one who's misrepresenting. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, the, the concern actually is. And if you ladies think that if there's any moment in time ever that you felt unsafe with uh, uh, someone's behavior around here, in that regard, my goodness, you would, I hope you say something immediately and we make sure that that got taken care of. I've removed five or six people over the years just because they couldn't find social boundaries. Uh, but nowhere near anybody getting raped or we covered it up. Oh my God. I just want to point out that this meeting happened in November of 2019. Earlier that very year, in May of 2019, Dave stood up in a staff meeting just like this one. He talked about how he had the six of his friends and that until they said to him that they had did the deed, those are Dave's words, by the way, he would stand with them. So why am I telling you all this? Uh, Because you need to know I got your six. Until proven otherwise, until you look at me and say, I did the deed, I did the problem, whatever, you know, I did did do this horrible thing um, and... That, that's the day that, that we'll still be friends, but you won't work here. But I understand. But I, on rumor, on innuendo, on ironclad information from your hairdresser, <laughs> I got your six. This place, the leadership team here, has got your back. We all need to learn to do better on that to not stab people in the back, to not automatically assume a pastor, a public figure, a friend is guilty as charged because somebody ran their mouth with a false accusation. Would you go to him is the question. No, you know, after hearing uh, this kind of messaging, you know, I wouldn't. This kind of messaging has this mum effect, mum standing for minimizing unwanted messages. It's clear that there are some messages that are unwanted. And when you're in that kind of environment and it's not clear what messages are acceptable, what messages are unwanted, you kind of keep everything to yourself. Because if you go to leadership and you know that there's a possibility that you might be disbelieved, you might be discredited, you might be shamed, you might be accused of not trusting the organization, you might be accused of being um, accusatory, then you might lose your job, you might lose your livelihood, there might be loss attached to that. I think that in that kind of environment where that type of messaging is being promoted, it is reasonable for people to keep their stories close to their chest for fear of how somebody in a position of authority over them might respond to that. It's sort of crazy making though, because the words that are said are saying, please come, please come to us, please come and tell us. But there's also a messaging that says the people that have had concerns are not really part of us. 
it certainly doesn't leave somebody feeling like they would you know be eager to go and be well received and that it would be safe for them you yeah. know anybody that talks about like abusive behavior that sort of thing and especially when it's a legal issue you you go to the law enforcement that's the first place to go because they're the ones that know how to handle it all right so here we have more of what we've seen in the past um he says this is just people angry about politics angry about atheism versus people of faith, angry about evangelicalism versus progressive forms of Christianity. But what it amounts to is, is that people that are uh, angry about politics, they're angry about atheism versus people of faith, they're angry about evangelicalism versus progressive forms of Christianity. There's just a lot of people angry. And so um, if you ever reach the point that you agree with some of them, um, and um, you're not proud to be here, I completely understand. I'm not mad at you at all. But don't work someplace you're, you think the CEO's in that case. That's just not, that's not, that says something about you. It doesn't say anything about me. Well, don't stay in a place you're ashamed of the people. Uh, that would be silly on your part. So please, please don't do that. Please quit. Get out of here before I find you. Because I wouldn't pay somebody that's ashamed of us. Why would I do that? That's kind of weird. It can be intimidating you know, to, to, to hear that, that if you sympathize with those who are being characterized as crazy and left-wing and liberal, if you have friends who are in that group and you agree with them, uh, then we'll, you know, you shouldn't work here and we're going to do what we can to make sure that you don't work here. So that kind of messaging is intimidating. It can come across as threatening and produces fear then in people. I mean, this isn't typical because it's a really high profile CEO, but to have a CEO say, basically take away your ability to like convince yourself it's okay to stay because you're okay with the mission. Because I would imagine there's some people that are like, I wish Dave would stop talking. I don't like when he does X, Y, Z. It makes me uncomfortable, but I really like what they're about. Here, Dave is taking that away from them. You don't get to just be there and be okay with the mission. You have to wholeheartedly support Dave as a person. I wrote this article on um, cubicles of charm and crucibles of condemnation in which I tried to describe how in an organizational culture, there can be this separation that happens within the organization where you have those who are placed in cubicles of charm. It's a metaphor to describe those who are sincerely converted to the person in charge, to the organization, and they are charmed, they are praised, they are ingratiated, and they're expected to return that. And then you have those who refuse to do that or dissent, and they're placed in crucibles of condemnation. You have this split. And I think that's a, an environment that is really un, unhealthy because what's missing then is truth often. And what's missing is, health, is a healthy dissent. And what it can lead to then, and this is where I'm, uh, I'm going to, is an unhealthy preoccupation with the identity at the top, you know, mm -hmm. the person at the top. 
And it's not just enough for people to be on board with the mission of the organization and value the work itself, but they have to be adherence to the person who is leading that, the identity. Mm -hmm. So they have to conform themselves to a personal identity and a personal brand. It's not just enough to be supportive of the mission because identities change and people come and go and leadership changes. So there ought to be something that goes beyond that, that lives beyond that. And I think it's unhealthy when people are being asked to be loyal to and adhere to an identity, a person within the context of an organization. So what do you hear when you hear this part of the, of this speech? And uh, I'm not threatened and I'm not defensive and I'm not thin skinned and I'm not any of those things, but I'm just unbelievably consistent. What he's, I think, perhaps primarily trying to do is to use that type of justification and appeal to cultural norms or generational norms to say, this is who I am and this is who I've always been. I'm not afraid. I'm not threatened. I'm not being defensive. Never have been, never have needed to be. Um, At one point, I think I remember him saying something about not, you know, having the fear of man. Mm -hmm. So... I think at the at the bottom of that is an attempt to justify current recent actions by appealing to a normal, justified culture and generation. We love Jesus. I'm a redneck hillbilly. I like motors and firearms, and I vote right wing as far as I can get. I hate socialism. I think capitalism rocks. You know, and, and and if any of that makes you ashamed to be here, I understand. I'm okay. I'm not telling you you have to agree with me to work here, but I'm telling you don't be ashamed. And don't be going, well, I don't know. You know, sometimes we a little wacky. You know, if you have to if you have to say that to your friends, you need to leave, okay? You need to leave. And don't don't be here. That's just one more reminder, like you have to buy the whole package. Yeah, and, and it's difficult, I think, in my in my experience, to to hear that kind of thing because then you you don't know where the lines are. Is is he referring to some kind of policy, a written policy in an employee handbook? Is he referring to a code of conduct that people have agreed to when there isn't those kind of written expectations that people have agreed to then and you know certain expectations though are conveyed like that Mm -hmm. then it creates these invisible lines and people then don't know when they're overstepping a line until often they find out after the fact that oh you should not have said that that's not something that because i gotta tell you I drove down here in a car that scares me a lot more than a firearm scares me. It's unbelievably fast. It scares the crap out of me sometimes. I just, my, my, I just about I'm going down A40 the other day and I'm like, whoa, you're not supposed to go that fast. And, um, oh, that's dangerous. And um, I, I, almost, I, I just don't feel that way when I'm handling a firearm. I don't feel that way when I'm on water skis. I don't feel that way when I'm going 64 miles an hour down a ski slope on a blue at 59 years old, I, we just, I, I'm, I'm not a person that is motivated by fear, but I am a person that's motivated by loyalty and kindness and compassion, and I am going to extend that to you, and I'm expecting you to extend that to this place, 
And if you're ashamed ever, or you think that we're wacky or we're weird, it means you took the wrong position and you need to make a plan to go somewhere else. If you need some help leaving, we'll help you financially. We're not going to. We don't want you to be hungry, but we just don't want you here. We don't want you here. Because I, I, I don't want people that are ashamed of me or ashamed of this place. And if you can't stand up and be with that, then, then it's time to go. So yeah, and people that are expected to respond in a way that meets the organization, the, the leadership's definition of loyalty and kindness and compassion. Because loyalty is, you know, blowing the whistle on, on, on unethical behavior um, because you're, you're loyal to the need for the organization to create and maintain a culture of compliance mm-hmm. and and maintain a culture of equity and safety and fairness. And so when you see that being violated, you you blow the whistle, you report that, knowing that that's your duty, that's part of being loyal. Mm-hmm. But in a culture organization where maybe that's seen as being disloyal, especially if the leader is the one who's engaging in violations and people are blowing the whistle on the leader, then all of a sudden the definition of what loyalty is, is mm. changed. And yeah. yeah, so it's. It's interesting when you talk about like, what, what exactly are they asking you to be loyal to is the good question. Yes. Yes. What does that mean? And does that extend beyond the quote unquote normals? Does it use Goffman's term? Does it extend beyond the in group? Does that kindness and compassion extend to those who are described as crazy, atheist, left-wing, angry, does that, does that kindness and compassion extend to others? Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that it ought to. Yeah. It's hard to ask those questions though, in that sort of environment. So I say that kind of stuff all the time, I know, but I want you to just hear a real peaceful spirit coming off. I mean, I'm just a guy that's very comfortable in my own skin and it's not arrogance. I just went through bankruptcy when I was 28 years old and I lost what the Bible calls fear of man. And so my need to impress the Atheist Association of America or the politically correct speech Nazis. Probably the most frequently used impression management tactic that's being used throughout this. If you were to do a content analysis of this content and using the framework of impression management, there's a lot of self-promotion and there's a lot of organizational promotion. The difference being organizational promotion says, look at the organization itself. Self-promotion says, look at me, right? So there's a lot of that promotion. And that's not to say that it's good or bad, right? So it's it's not to say that there's necessarily a character defect there or something wrong about that, morally wrong about that. But it's just to say that that's what's happening with the communication is it's causing people to look at something about the organization or about Dave Ramsey here, something about the past, something about um, their attributes. And it's then difficult, right? When the promotion, when the communication that promotes is all positive, when there isn't an acknowledgement that Hey, here are some weaknesses. Here are some things we need to work on. Here are some concerns that we think are legitimate that we're taking seriously. When there isn't that and the promotion is all positive, Mm -hmm. then it's very difficult for other people to express any kind of language that might disrupt that self-promoting narrative. Because all of a sudden then you, when you do that, become a threat. If you slow down and if you pause 
and say, wait a minute, what do you mean that this place is anointed, right? How, how is that going to be received? Yeah. So when it's all positive, then it can be very difficult for someone to dissent or even to ask a question about yeah. this truth. Mm-hmm. Or the whatever, and you know, you don't take care of, you know, you don't promote women. And I'm like, well, have you not looked at this organization? You know, moron, are you? You know, two of our six uh, personalities claim to be female. <laughs> and one of our, and, 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 and one of our directors of live events is questioning that. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I don't get, um, I, I, I get, um, when it comes to racism, I get one out of about 20 um, right wing, uh, not right wing, that's not the right word, but um, one of those pointy headed guys that are idiots called um, the Klansmen or the whatever, the, the white supremacy people, right? You would think we'd get attacked by more of those since two of our. People right on the front of this place are African American. I mean, and um, I got one this week finally, like making fun of me because I had two African American guys, and he was a, I clicked on white supremacist guy. But I, you know what? I get more than anything is we're racist, which is always just a shocking to me. I guess it's because we don't do contrived anything. We just uh, put you in a position, regardless of where what you are. We do it based on what you perform, and so we don't do contrived political correctness here. Um, it's just performance, and whoever the best person is, man, woman, anybody, I mean, you, you know, northerner, southerner, I don't care, I mean, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, and and um, so, I mean, just whoever does the best job gets the job, and to step into a personality role, a leadership role, a role of any kind, and uh, we didn't notice if they were male or female or black or white or... Asian or anything else. We didn't notice. We don't give a rip. Um, and so, but we're, but, but we don't have this, like this flag we're flying about how great we are and how politically correct we are. So we get criticized for all that too. So what's happening there? Well, you know, it could be addressing other concerns that people have raised and then quickly showing, you know, why those concerns aren't legitimate as well. And doing that by using perhaps what's um, called in impression management literature, pro-social behavior, some kind of demonstration that shows why the concern itself is not legitimate. So there's concerns about treatment of women. Well, we have women who are in positions of leadership, right? So it's demonstrating why these concerns are not legitimate, right? So that could be what's, what's, what's happening there. Is your your suggestion is sometimes when people do this, they're sort of reacting to other pushback they've had on things. Yeah, I think so. Or or maybe he's trying to to show how they're they're not so far right. You have white supremacy groups. Yeah, we're not that far, right? We're not that right. So yeah, yeah a distancing from those who maybe that far at that end of the spectrum. Yeah. And if they were racist, why would they be getting pushback from some of these people? Right. So he moves on then to talk about how there have been some really great events that have happened. About the best event I've been a part of, and I don't know when, was last week. 
I mean, Chris Hogan and the team on the Entree Master Series, I'll give you an update on it later, 650, the largest one we've ever done, just lights out of crime. And I taught all day on Friday. I haven't been on the stage all day in a long time. I was tired. And I taught all day on family business, and we had worked so hard for the last six months building that material out for the first time, and it was absolutely lights out incredible. Isn't it funny in your life how there's always something going really right, and there's always something going really wrong? All at the same time. You know, there's always some wonderful stuff and there's always some manure to fertilize the next wonderful stuff. You know, I mean, it's like, it's just, it, that's true in all our lives, our personal lives, our business life, everything. And, and so the best of, best of times, the worst of times, you know. And so um, you get all that. So we've got so many wonderful things going on. Uh, don't get distracted. So I think a lot of times what happens when a leader is getting up in front of followers to respond to concerns that at some point there's a moment in which they feel the need to convince their followers that all is well and there's nothing that you need to be concerned about and and maybe that's what's happening here mm-hmm. yeah oh and by the way for those of you who hadn't heard this in a while too um please don't defend us on social media don't get into it because a couple of you rose up and popped a couple of them like, no, I don't do, you don't need to do that. It just stirs it up more. Just, I just let, I just, I, but I, want, I, I keep my finger on the vibe of what's going on. We do, but don't rise up and defend. And go, well, Dave, does it? You know, somebody asked Jim the other day somewhere. The same thing they shared. Said, does Dave, does Dave carry a firearm? Like when he's on stage, and she said, or, or did he ever do that? And she said, like every week. You know, it's the same thing as Sharon. So. But that was an, an in-person interaction. It wasn't, um, don't, don't, don't put stuff on social media. There's no reason to argue with people who've already made up their minds. Those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. And um, social media is basically full of cowards and trolls, and they're very similar. And so um, you can't have a good quality conversation there with someone that you disagree with. I'd love to have quality conversations when I want people to disagree with that kind of like arguing, but, um, but don't get caught up in that. I wonder what yeah. Dave thinks of social media pushback and if right. somebody's doing it on social media. Yeah. And again, you know, there's this stigma that's attached to social media, not so much to social media, but to people who are using social media. The suggestion is that people who are bringing their concerns via Twitter or Facebook or whatever you know, he thinks social media is that they're cowardly, that they lack courage and they're hiding behind a screen. The question then is, is is that a fair characterization? And is it fair to suggest that everyone who might be voicing concerns on social media lack courage? Mm -hmm. So it's, again, it's this language that can stigmatize others in a way that isn't true or or isn't fair so um if you're concerned about something feel free to ask any of the leadership team about anything you're more than happy I mean, we don't have any secrets here we don't have anything that you know you can't talk about everybody gets mad nobody's mad this is just who we are the mad people are somewhere out there but, uh, so just hope that hope, hope that helps you and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's wonderful for you. It's just, I'm happy for you. That's a good thing. So, life is good.
But this is a, these are good terms, y'all. I mean, that event last week and that event, Christian, you guys just did. The, the stuff, you know, Anthony just has a number one book. Uh, you know, we just got an email, y'all. One, this is, blew my mind. The the uh, YouTube people sent it to us. We just had our one billionth minute of YouTube on our channel downloaded. A lot of good stuff going on. A lot of good-hearted, smart people in this room. They're kind. They're generous. They're helping people all over the world right now to change their lives. And that's what this organization is really about. It's not about Dave's 262 guns in his gun closet because I collect guns. It's not about that. It's not about the number of cars I have or the size of my house. It is not about any of that. Those are small, small things for small-minded people to worry about. So we're worried about helping big things, changing the world, helping people change their lives, helping people meet Jesus who don't know him. And that's just so much more important. Spend your time and your energy on that kind of stuff. Yeah, so you know, that, that kind of language can belittle legitimate concerns, right? So people who are concerned about this are small-minded, and they're focusing on small things. In contrast, you know, the, the group, the, the organization is focusing on more important things. So it's creating right. this dichotomy again, you know, between yeah. us. And again, it sets, it, just, it sets people up to wonder, okay, how am I going to be received if I share concerns or bring concerns of any kind? You know, will, will I be told that I'm making too much of something that I'm focusing on a, on a minor grievance that I'm making a mountain out of a molehill that I'm distracted from the mission that I'm not concerned about them, you know? So. Yeah. It starts with an assumption that mm -hmm. not everybody might be at, but now you're sort of forced into being at that place or else you have to like move the conversation back, which is really awkward. Right. Like raising your hand to say, but can I be in the group? Can I care about Jesus and changing people's lives and still wonder if maybe this was a line that shouldn't have been crossed? Yes. That, yeah. That's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. There ought to be an opportunity for people to ask those kind of questions and to seek clarity, you know, when statements like that are made. To ask the, yeah, what hold on, what about this scenario? You know, what about where I'm at right now? You know, what if I do have a, an opinion about whether or not a line was crossed, you know, mm -hmm. there ought to be that freedom, I think, to be able to express concerns like that. Yeah, a healthy organization, a safe organization would provide space for that sort of dialogue mm -hmm. without it being a threat for somebody's job. It shouldn't be a threat to an organization or a leader if somebody were to ask those clarifying questions. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, another interesting you know, question is, why why does this seem so threatening why is it receiving the response it's receiving i mean the words being spoken saying i'm not threatened but he's taking up a whole staff meeting or a whole like 20 minutes of a staff meeting to address it so right. it sort of does something weird to your brain to be like it's not a big deal but it did just take up 20 minutes of our staff meeting yeah. it's crazy making <laughs>
Um, so, and, and you had talked about the different groups of people in the room that would be like the fully bought in and the disengaged and the different, and I have talked to some people that have left Ramsey and they just don't remember some things anymore. Cause they were so, they were checked out for a while. Their brains just shut off. They don't remember because it was just easier to disengage during some of these meetings. Cause they happen at a regular enough interval and it caused enough cognitive dissonance in them that they just sort of had to shut off their brain. It was too much to process. So the end of the meeting is moving on again. You know, we are about Jesus, helping people meet Jesus. It's more important. And that's what we need to spend our time and energy on. And then he prays. God, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for our team. Uh, we thank you for the incredible, incredible anointing you've got on this place right now. You have truly expanded our territory. And Father, we are in awe of how kind and gracious you've been to us. Father, help us to be who you want us to be, how you want us to be, so that we can feed your lambs and cause people to know you. This place exists for those that are not here. In Jesus' name. I can see how it can be really difficult to sit through something like that and wonder if you can respond, how you can respond, what will happen to you if you still have concerns because there is this there's this us versus them narrative and them might even include those in the meeting who do have legitimate concerns so it creates this separation and that then creates this anxiety and fear and it separates people you know and and you then have to decide am i going to get in line and get in line means mirroring these messages believing that we are anointed that we are going to you know remain loyal to each other and believing that those who are bringing these concerns really are irrational and they aren't legitimate. So you either get in that line or you get out of line. Mm -hmm. If you were talking to a team member that had experienced a meeting like this and was feeling sort of conflicted, what sort of words would you give them to help them sift through some of the things, you know, the messages they were getting, a, a way to sort of process all of it? What What is something that you would suggest? Well, I think I would validate and affirm the feelings of confusion and being conflicted and that somebody shouldn't leave a meeting feeling that way. Or if they do feel that way, they ought to be able to get clarity in a non-threatening way. So I would validate that, but also suggest that somebody who's in that place seek to make sense of what they've heard. That's engaging in, I think, a very healthy process called sense-making, where mm -hmm. you slow down, maybe you do an inventory of what you heard and you just list it out. You say, well, I don't know about this and this and this. I don't know if this is what I'm not sure is true. This is what I'm not sure was kind or fair to others. So you do that kind of inventory in order to make sense mm of what you believe to be true. Because so often when you leave a kind of meeting where you're confused and you're conflicted, it's disorienting in the sense that you may wonder, is something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe I am a left-wing crazy. Maybe there is something wrong with me. So it, it, it's really disorienting. And so the inventory process, the sitting down and processing that can be recalibrating, can be recentering and grounding. And then I think it's also helpful to do that with 
others, that this could be dangerous, but it yeah. could be others who are in that meeting, or it could be with a trusted friend or a therapist, somebody with insight that might be able to say, no, you're not crazy for still having concerns. You're not mm-hmm. irrational for thinking that a line was crossed and thinking that that's not okay. So I would suggest that it's after a meeting like this, it's helpful to go through some kind of process either by yourself or even better with others who have insight in order to get back to what is true. That's really helpful. The whole, the sense making, which would include sort of a validating as well of what does this make sense? Did this actually happen? you know, what, what's really going on here. And you won't have the time to do that in the moment that in that 20 minute meeting, there's no time to do that. Plus you're moving on right after that to get back to work. And so to be able to check back in later and really process it is so important. You know, some people just don't ever do that because they've moved on and they don't have to feel that dissonance again until the next kind of meeting like that happens. And then they're reminded, do I want to think about this? Yeah, and I think part of that inventory too, and that sense-making is making sense of the impact that it's having on you because somebody can leave a, a meeting at the start of the day and walk away from that meeting and for the rest of the day be thinking about it, wondering, what did I just hear? What did I just sit through? What does this mean? It can create anxiety and confusion and feelings of fear, and that can last for the rest of the day and mm-hmm. disrupt your work day, it can last for a long time, you know, and it can build and it can worsen. So it's, it's important and it can bleed into your home life and personal life. So I think it's important to do an inventory of, of the impact as, uh, as well. If you don't know, like the context of what's happening, what you'll do is you'll walk away with all this information. This was sort of piled on you that you didn't even expect to have. And you walk away with not even remembering everything that was said, but you do have an impression of what just happened. You have a feeling like the overall message that was sent. So I think it would be interesting if people do pause and think through specifically what happened, because if you don't, you just have this like overall, like, I think some people were like upset, but they're crazy, you know, without thinking through like the specifics of it. I know that you have done work with organizations that want to be healthy, in this case, if you were working with an organization and they, and they were faced sort of with some pushback like this, and, and you had a leader in good faith ask you, Wade, what do you think is the, the healthiest way to respond when we're facing this sort of pushback to something that we have done? And I know this doesn't happen very often, but this is like in a hypothetical world. I think it starts with listening and creating a way for people to express concerns safely, because there may be others who have similar concerns. Um, There may be, even if you're an organizational leader, there may be even people on your board or close to you that have the same concerns, but they're not expressing them. So a way for those concerns to be expressed safely, communicated safely, and then listened to and considered. And then I think a way for uh, people who have expertise an insight to give some kind of advice to the organization. Somebody who's not, who is not so close to it that they feel as if their identity itself is being threatened Mm. and perhaps spoiled. 
by the concerns. If it's a leader who is responding to the concern in a way that comes across as defensive and they begin to appeal to who they are and their identity and their childhood, then that to me would be concerning because all of a sudden it's not about the organization, it's about somebody's identity. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer a concern that's being brought in the context of what is normal and appropriate and safe for organizational conduct, you know, practices within an organization, but it's about somebody's identity and it's Mm. a threat to that person's identity. So somebody who isn't threatened should be the one who's then responding, I think, and giving advice to the organization as to how they, what they ought to do next. And then if they, and then it really is a question of has, has a line been crossed, you know, has there been a violation? And if so, what is it? You know, what should we call this? How do we describe this to others? And then that needs to be corrected. It needs to be acknowledged, right? So the truth of what happened needs to be acknowledged. And then there needs to be an inventory that the organization does of what has been the impact of that boundary crossing behavior of that violation. And then there might be things that need to be corrected and there might be people who have been impacted uh, that need to be apologized to, that might need some form of restitution. And then beyond that, there might need to be some kind of evaluation of what's really behind this. You know, what's, what, are, what are some of the roots that led to this violation, this boundary crossing behavior? And let's address that. And maybe there's policies that need to be changed or adopted to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And yeah. that, that's just a typical- That's the dream, uh, right? That, that would be- yeah, right. I think the hardest part of this sort of situation is when you're dealing with an organization that doesn't really have a board of directors that they, it's just sort of an operating board. And when it comes to Ramsey, like Dave is it, he, he's the, he's the guy, he doesn't answer to anyone. And I'm sure there are other organizations out there that are like that. And I, you know, I just have this dream that there would be some sort of way for organizations that truly want to have accountability and some sort of validation of their health. There was something out there, like an, like a third party thing that people could say, you know, I have this, we have a relationship with XYZ corporation and they every often do this sort of, you know, a cultural analysis of how healthy we are, where they get that sort of stamp of approval. (laughs) This is, it's hard to sell people on being proactive in this. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, and, and we're seeing that all over the place, you know, even in structures where you have a higher authority that's able to provide accountability for a church or an organization, like a, you know, a board or a denomination, you know, that kind of thing. Even in those systems, you know, you still have a lack of accountability. Yeah. And I do think there needs to be just reform across the board. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to our views of power, yeah. when it comes to how power is distributed, roles and identities that are connected to mm-hmm. that. And that's why I'm grateful for the, the work of Diane Langberg and Chuck DeGroote and others who are causing us to look more closely at yeah. power, look more closely at narcissism. And I think we have a real problem uh, when it comes to those areas. And yeah, yep, if people in positions of power and authority, you know, have tethered their identity to what they're offering to other people, 
if they're failing in the very things that they're teaching other people, yeah, um, then that's going to be an identity threat. It's going to be, so it's going to make it a lot harder to see and to recognize or to like address because it's so core to that. Well, I really appreciate your time. I, I know that, I know this is an area that you are super interested in, but I also know that it takes work and time for you. So I I greatly appreciate it. And, um, is there a way we could support your work? Where, Where are you writing? What are you doing these days? You started your own consulting company. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. It's an honor to be a guest. Um, I did start a consulting firm called Pellucid Consulting. So I started that last year in 2021, providing just consulting services for people who reach out and doing assessments for churches primarily. And then I also am trying to keep up with the writings. I do have a website, wadetmullen.com. And I have a Substack as well. And that's linked on the website as well. But the Substack is called Pellucid as well. And Pellucid is a word that I came across. It just means allowing the maximum passage of light mm. into an area. So the more light, for instance, that a window lets in to a room, the more pellucid it, it, it is. So I find it so interesting that the legal name of Dave Ramsey's organization is the Lampo Group. Several articles that have been written about the company have reported that this name had been chosen at least in part because the word Lampo is the Greek word for light. In fact, the LLC that is listed as the owner of the property where the current Ramsey Solutions headquarters is located is Matthew 5, 14-16 LLC. I'll read those verses for you. You are a light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Since our time with the Lampo Group ended in 2019, I've been praying for the light to truly illuminate the organization and that the darkness we experienced would be revealed. So hearing Dr. Mullen share some of his observations about impression management and then sharing the meaning of the name of his consulting company feels especially important. Pellucid, an adjective whose definition is admitting maximum passage of light without diffusion or distortion. I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. You can also find show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thank you to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by support from my patrons. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, and Pam Forsythe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.